from RTE Radio. I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Taught to knit by my mom, which, you know, not the most, not the coolest thing to admit on I air. I think that's pretty but, cool. That's hey, cool. What, what can you do? I mean, now I'm after introducing this saying it's the size of a football pitch but it's clearly not a large green rectangle hurtling through space. <laughs> that very first show here and the, the response from the audience when we walked on stage after the introduction from Pat Inglesby was it was a bigger response I'd ever had than ever coming off a stage. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, a 21 year old knitting fashion sensation. David Gray heads back to where it all began and it's the end of the world as we know it. I'm sorry. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that'll be in a bunker at an unnamed location by the time you hear this. Let's start with Oliver Callan's monologue from this morning's uh, Oliver Callan. Our host began with bad news. Unless you're a Liverpool and or Northern Ireland supporter, I suppose. Connor Bradley is across all of the news uh, today overnight. Uh, they're celebrating in Tyrone again because Connor Bradley scored his first goal for Liverpool. He is 20 years of age and he said he was in a dreamlike state after scoring his first Liverpool goal and also two assists as Jurgen Klopp's team moved five points clear at the top of the Premier League table with a 4-1 thrashing of Chelsea just last night. Connor is he's from Tyrone. He's from a place called Aheron, which is that's the townland. We're very precise here which is six miles from Castle Derg in County Tyrone. So it's a great, um, it's been a massive, massive thing for him. His manager was impressed by the display. Bradley became the youngest Liverpool player to score and assist a goal in a Premier League match since Raheem Sterling, who, as it happens, was on the pitch for Chelsea. And uh, it was 10 years ago when he became the youngest Liverpool player. So he's the youngest since then. Amazing. And uh, Bradley, he plays his football, unfortunately, for a Northern Ireland international, for those of us down here, he's a Northern Ireland international, so he's opted for, for up there. And I think people were going, unite Ireland now, just so we could get him into the Ireland team. Uh, it is a shame that the, 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 the soccer, the football is divided, whereas the rugby is an all-Ireland team. Uh, he became the first Northern Ireland international to score for Liverpool since Sammy Smith 70 years ago. And at the age of 20, he's got his assist tally now to five assists in... Um, in just four games. It was quite incredible. He was chatting. I heard a little bit of him earlier, but this is interesting. He didn't know what to do when he scored and he had to come up with something at the last minute. I just couldn't believe it went in. I just thought I'm going to head it here. And then went in the bottom corner and I just didn't know what to do. So went over to the corner and done a knee slide. And then, yeah, it was, yeah, it was brilliant. So it was. Done a knee slide. The accent certainly has been affected. Not a Brad Knight. That's the headline in the Irish Daily Star at the back this morning. And North Star is a pretty good one. That's for Conor Bradley there as well. Uh, in football news, we all know Charlie O'Leary. Remember, those of us who remember Jackie's Army, Italian 90 and all of that. His, uh, Ireland's most iconic kit man has celebrated his 100th birthday today. So happy birthday to Charlie O'Leary. He's turned a century old, a 90s hero with a milestone, of course, after his decades of loyal service to the boys in green. And um, he was visited there recently by Paul McGrath, ahead of the big day. And he was an amateur football in his day, Charlie O'Leary. He went on to become a referee in the League of Ireland, which he did for 20 years. And then he became a part of the national team when he was brought on as a physio, uh, physio Mick Burns' assistant in 1986. And under Jack Charlton and later Mick McCarthy, he had the front row seat to all the great epic moments. He ended up, um, you might remember the picture of him, uh, with uh, the Pope's arm around him. Remember when they went to visit with Big Jack and the lads in Italia 90? And he says, I think the Pope thought I was falling on top of him, which is why his arm shot out. So happy birthday to Charlie. He'll also be getting a letter, won't he, from, from President Higgins? So a good day. Good day all around. 
Of course, Charlie is only 38. It's just working with the Irish national team means he looks more like he's 100. Anyway, let's pivot, pivot to hearings for tech CEOs in the US. Not such a good day for the five CEOs from major tech companies who testified at a US Senate hearing yesterday about their repeated failures to protect children online. Now, some of them were there for the first time, but the meta boss, that's the Instagram and Facebook boss, Mark Zuckerberg, was appearing for the eighth time. Still hasn't learned his lesson. The most dramatic point, this was very different, this hearing, because he was essentially forced into apologising to family members um, who say their children have been harmed as a result of social media use or content. Uh, some of the children are no longer around. This is how serious it has obviously got over the years. And they've never been there before. So it made a very, very different uh, type of hearing. The families were there. They were kind of, they hissed the CEOs as they came in and they were reacting very strongly. And uh, of course, there was lots of grandstanding. Uh, but Congress, US Congress, only passed one children's safety law in the last decade. This is a clash um, Mark Zuckerberg had with Senator Josh Hawley. Not the greatest role model you could have, Josh Hawley, if you um, saw his interactions on the January 6th Capitol riots, where he was essentially raising his fist and so on. Uh, so he has this interaction with Mark Zuckerberg, with the families behind them. And it was quite a, a dramatic moment. Uh, families whose children are either severely harmed or gone, and you don't think it's appropriate to take a, talk about steps that you took? Let me ask steps you this. Have you compensated any of the victims? Sorry? Have you compensated any of the victims? I don't believe so. You, why not? Senator, our job and what we take seriously is making sure that we build industry-leading tools to find harmful to content, make money. take it off the services, uh, to make money. and to build tools that empower parents. So you didn't take any people. action. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I've, Would I've, you like to do so now? Well, They're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologise for what you've done to these good people? And he does. They cheered. He turned around, so we missed the moment because it wasn't captured on the microphone, but he said he was sorry. This is Mark Zuckerberg. Sorry for everything you've all been through. No one should go through, through the things that your families have suffered, and this is why we invest so much and are continuing to uh, do in industry-wide efforts to make sure no one has to go through the things that your families have had to suffer. Of course, he hasn't paid anything out. So it was, it was kind of those moments, but we're in 2024, and there's virtually no regulation in the U.S., or indeed in, in Ireland, which is supposed to police social media on behalf of Europe, uh, with regard to social media. There's no, no, very little regulation. So one of the big questions left hanging over the hearing, will anything actually ever be done? That's the question. Yeah, I think we'll be waiting. But not for the end of the morning monologue, because we're there already. Nah, our boy Oliver doesn't hang around, does he? Truth, the cliché goes, is stranger than fiction. Just ask any true crime podcast fan. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Colm O'Mongon, sitting in for Claire, spoke to pop culture journalist and broadcaster Jen Gannon about the best documentaries we should be watching out for in 2024. Here's one that's available right now. Mother God. Let's have a listen to a clip of that. Amy Carlson. They called her Mother God. Mother God. This is Mother God. She is the leader of an organization called Love Has Won. She has a divine plan to help humanity. 19 billion years old, reincarnated Jesus. She was Joan of Arc, Cleopatra. She's God. This is 
Mother God and the Earth allies. You are not alone, and we love you. I was struggling with addiction. Rape, torture, abuse. That puts you in a black hole that you just can't see light out of. I was able to see her true unconditional love. She healed people. It was enticing. We are here to shine the light on truth and together walk out of the prison of illusion. Exit the Matrix. I don't know whether to be scared, fascinated <laughs> or entertained. Uh, Jen Gannon, what did we just hear? People like a good cult. I love They a loved wild cult. Cunt, a country. So... What's Love Has Won? Yeah, I watched this over Christmas and I, I just couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's on Now TV. It's available there. Three episodes. And it, essentially, it's the story of Amy Carlson. And she was a mother, mother of three, you know, a fan of karaoke, a manager of a McDonald's in Houston, Texas. And she seemed to be a woman who's on a path to living out a fairly average existence. And then by 2007, she her life started to change. She started getting into New Age philosophy and that took over her life and she abandoned her family and to follow her calling like she said and it eventually led to her starting up this religious movement called Love Has Won she was at the head of this group and she called herself Mother God and surrounded herself basically it's really the story of the age of information and our desire for you know communication and community through online and that's how she built up her following she was online you know on these new age sites and somebody she got in contact with this guy who was saying you're a divine being. She went to Colorado to live with him. And then of course. She, of course, <laughs> as you do. And then she started recruiting these followers online and they all ended up living in a house together um, and every single moment of their lives was captured on YouTube, rolling 24-7, almost like a reality TV show, like something like the cult uh, style Big Brother. And with that, you know, because you're seeing it 24-7, other people started joining them as well. And it, she was saying to kind of people to live off the grid. It was a bit of a mishmash of philosophies, like QAnon kind of conspiracy theories. Um, but also at the same time, really weirdly, if she's saying to people to live off the grid and escape capitalism, they were also kind of selling you know, their wares, almost like a cult QVC on this YouTube channel where people could buy religious beads or they could buy some of her clothes or whatever so they could be close to her. And it was just a really fascinating, it, true visceral insight into this world. And obviously with this, as it keeps on going, they, they, they become very isolated and vulnerable and they're very insular. They believe that they're being persecuted. They end up moving all over America. They go to Hawaii. They're chased out of there as well. And it's all about how when you're exposing yourself on, you know, these channels with people getting in touch, there can be, you know, people that want to take advantage of you as well. And those kind of people end up joining the cult. But also it's about how insular then they became and their beliefs became even stranger. You know, she had this whole thing where she was saying that she was being contacted by the Galactics and the Galactics were all made up of celebrities. So Robin dead Williams, celebrities. dead celebrities. Robin Williams became this huge focal point for the group where they would say that Robin Williams was telling them to do certain things. She was getting guidance from people like Robin Williams and Whitney Houston. But Robin Williams was the main one and it was almost like he was a different side to her. So if she wanted to tell them 
you know, to do something that wasn't necessarily all love and kindness. She would say, it's Robin Williams telling me to tell you to do this. And she also said she could cure cancer. She could cure Lyme disease. Okay, you could so see a poor girl who left. She was in a coma and had these stacked up bills and ended up running away to join them. And it's about that belief of like, you know, the American health system, as we know, not a great place to be. And she thought by healing herself through New Age philosophy, she would be okay. Okay, so, and if, if, if you think cults promises are too good to be true, this is only three episodes. So uh, <laughs> potentially almost too good to be true there anyway, as you say. Um, now, we mentioned true crime can be stranger than fiction uh, as well. Let's hear a bit from American Nightmare. He said, you know, it was around the same time of the Gone Girl case. You know, the Gone Girl case. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Kidnapping for ransom mystery involving a 30-year-old woman. Taken forcibly in the night from a home on Mare Island. That woman who claims she was kidnapped has turned up safe and unharmed this morning in Huntington Beach. Police are now saying it was all a wild goose chase. It was all a hoax, an elaborate hoax. They're calling this woman a liar on national news. But I just wanted to reach through the computer and just give her a hug and say, I got you. Uh, whose side are you on in this one? Well, don't no, no spoilers. <laughs> Tell us just in brief what's fascinating about this before we, we hit some of the other ones. I mean, I think this is the one that everybody is talking about right now and it's available on Netflix right now. It's three episodes yet again, which is good because usually Netflix spin out their documentaries, you know, to extreme lengths and this is perfect size. So this is, you know, dubbed The Real Gone Girl and it's the case of Denise Huskins and in 2015 she was kidnapped, drugged, raped and held hostage by a violent home intruder. Her boyfriend Aaron Quinn was the prime suspect and Quinn was interrogated and tormented by the police for 48 hours when she was missing and then Huskins reappears seemingly unscathed and she was accused and completely vilified in the media um, to say that she had enacted this kidnapping herself and Quinn was in on it um, and it really is outrageous it's told from their point of view um, from Quinn and Huskins point of view and it's difficult to talk about it because I don't want to give away how the story unfolds but it is shocking uh, to say the least. It's really about how the media and the American legal system treats right. the victims of crimes um, and it's very, you know, it's insidious, it's explosive. Okay. Um, and from the insidious and explosive to here's a bit of love with uh, Jennifer Lopez. When I was a little girl when someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up my answer was always in love. That's a bit of a gear change. Jen, tell us about this one now. What's Jennifer it? Lopez on What's Love. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, What's it is, called? What is it? It's called uh, Something Insane. Like, uh, This Is Me Now, a love story from the heart and soul and dreams of Jennifer Lopez. It's out on Amazon, uh, I think on the 16th of this month. And it's, what is that? What is that title? It sounds like something that ChatGPT would come up with. Um, and the trailer is, it's hard to get a, a notion about what this is. Like even from the trailer, there's motorcycles. There's a bit where it looks like she's working in the gay steel mine that was in The Simpsons. There's these weird, fantastical weddings that keep on happening in it and a bit of a singing in the rain reference. And basically it's Jennifer Lopez trying to tell you who she is. Um, if we didn't know enough about her from the documentary. I thought the she was Jenny from The Block who she, used to have a little is. in there. 
now she has a lot. She, she does that, indeed. And she's still the same, but also different. This is her now. So uh, she had a documentary on Netflix called Halftime, and that was about her turning 50. And that was a pretty much, you know, straight, pretty much ordinary documentary, nuts and bolts documentary, whereas this is more of this no fantastical balls, thing. This is like, I don't know if you've seen The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the Nicolas Cage film no, that was based on, traded on his brand of eccentricity. So this is kind of like J-Lo's version of that, but it's J-Lo talking about her love of love. And we have to go with this fantasy, I think. Uh, it's a, It's like... You know, the megastars, pop stars in their pump that used to do this kind of thing. And I, I think it's a great throwback to like when Michael Jackson made something like Moonwalker where they gave him a load of money to do whatever he likes. So I'm dying to see what this is going to be like. Jen will watch it so we don't have to. That's pop culture journalist and broadcaster Jen Gannon talking must-watch documentaries with Colm O'Mungan this morning. The bottle deposit scheme is finally upon us and we can stop talking about it. Just kidding. Here's Sean talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. On the school run this morning, we stopped into Super Value in Ballymahan in Longford. Yeah, near Centre uh, near Centre Parks. Near Centre yes. Parks, exactly, yeah. yeah. Dropping the girls to school, we always drop in and get a, a coffee or a hot chocolate or a bottle of juice or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Anyway, picked up a bottle of orange juice off the shelf, got our two coffees up to the till and... Um, was charged a 15 cents for the bottle. But I okay. had looked at the bottle when I picked it up and I knew it was old stock. Uh, it didn't have the return logo on it. So I said it to the till operator, I said, what's the story here? I said, there's no return logo on the bottle. Why are you charging me the 15 cents? It's not the 15 cents, Joe. It's a, it's a matter of principle more than anything and else. Remember, it's 15 cents on top of the price already. So Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> but but um, and, and as stated in the receipt, this was your, your return deposit. Yep, the receipt said it was the very first thing on the receipt was okay. the bottle of orange and then the, and then the deposit, um, 15 cents. Okay. Uh, she, she called the supervisor over and the supervisor said to me, oh, no, you, you, you can just put it in the machine. I said, but it doesn't have the logo. And all the messaging around this for the last couple of months, mm-hmm. um, since you guys start highlighting it on Radio 1 and on Liveline, was that the only bottles that would be accepted would yeah. be the bottles that had the return logo on it. You can, I'll, so, read from, I'll read from their website, you can return your empty and un, undamaged, empty and undamaged drinks container featuring the return logo, featuring the return logo to any participating shop or supermarket nationwide, regardless of where it was purchased, that we know that. But they do, because it is clear, featuring the return logo. Now, what did your your shop tell you? She said that we could put this bottle in the, in the vending machine to get her 15 cent back. And I was like, but that's not what the messaging has been for the last mm-hmm. four months. So anyway, I left the shop. I had to get the kids to school and I, I, I stuck a tweet up on, on, on X. And Super Value replied saying the same thing, that I could bring the bottle back mm-hmm. and put it in the machine to get my 15 cents. But I went on to the return website and the same thing on the return website. You have to have the logo on it to get the money back. And I went, mm, okay, maybe I'll ring them. So I rang Return. Place, and they yeah. said exactly the same thing. <laughs> that they ha- you have to, ha- it has to have the, the logo on it, the Return logo, and a separate Return barcode in order to be able to get and so use the... So, so my understanding of what you told me there about Super Value, Super Value are saying we have, we have calibrated the barcode to allow it to be returned, but you're saying Return... The, government quango don't accept that and now has anyone tried is there a reverse vending machine in that shop 
Uh, there is, but obviously we weren't we weren't drinking it while we were in the shop. Yeah, we of course, went of course. Home. But, but well, I, remember, I, I you have to you have to wash the bottle before you bring it back. Now, in fairness, exactly. So I, I've kept the bottle, so I am going to try it out. But I've got two other bottles here that I bought uh, on Monday in in Dunn's. Mm-hmm. so I'm going to try them as well. Yeah, that that would that will be. Yeah, there is confusion. The 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 website is beyond. Um, it, it is there's no ambiguity. Must no, feature that, that, the return that, logo. Where's, the other thing as well, Joe, yeah. when you think about it, like in, in Super Value this morning, they had trays, and like they had the multi-pack trays of 7-Up, Coke, Prime that have all been in that store for the last couple of days or okay, the last well, couple of weeks. Well, Sean, let's, let's get to shopkeeper side. Kiva, good afternoon. Hello again, Joe. How okay, are you? Okay, you, you, you were selling, um, you're in a service station. Are you, have you got the return logo on all your products? No, Joe. What's after happening is we got a, a software update the other day saying there was nearly 300 products which are called international products that wouldn't have the return logo on that we from today would have to charge the 15 cent for um, and the consumer was to take our word for it that these could be brought back to a vending machine. That list of just under 300 products mm-hmm. has been updated today to nearly 600 products that will not have the logo on it. Just today, the day of the yeah, introduction. today. Today we got an email with 600 products on it that will not have the return logo, but their barcodes will be accepted into the reverse vending machine and the people will get their 15 cent. So we've been told for months and months, Joe, that once the return logo is on it, that it it will work and the system will be Mm -hmm. foolproof. But typically Irish now, they've said, but except for these 600 products that won't have the logo on, that you do have to charge and will be refundable. The confusion will continue until morale improves. That's Quiva talking to Joe Duffy about the bottle deposit scheme on this afternoon's Live Line. Orrin O'Reilly is a third year student in IADT. He studies fashion and his designs, including woolen dresses and corsets, are making waves in the fashion space. He joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning. Uh, doing fab things with woolly dresses yes, and corsets. Yeah. Is that the case? Yeah. So, um, yeah, a lot of the work I do is a lot of corsetry, a lot of hand knit, using some Irish techniques, mm-hmm. kind of trying to bring that back. Oh, really? Yes. Well, where have you learned these? Are these? My mom. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, taught to knit by my mom, which, you know, not the most, not the coolest thing to admit on I air, think that's pretty cool. Hey, that's cool. What, what can you do? I mean, it's, it's working for him because like, uh, how does it happen? You're sitting at home with your sewing machine one day and now you're dressing pop stars. Yes. So I am currently studying costume design mm-hmm. in IADT, but originally I wanted to do set design. That was kind of my thing, production design, whatever. Yes. But in first year, we had to try a bit of everything. So I was like, you know what? Let me give costume a little try. And I kind of fell in love with it. And I had so made... This is very new, this is very recent. Yes, I'm in third year now, so this was three years ago. Okay. And I had made a corset for Christmas for my friend Chloe. And it was of Natasha Leone. There's a photo of her on the front. And Natasha Leone had posted on her story. So I was like, I was getting a lot of DMs saying, oh my God, can I buy this? Can You know, is this for sale? Can I buy one? And I was like, oh, I can make money from this. Do you know what I mean? That was the first click of right. like, oh wow, people might want to buy what I can do. Natasha Leone, for people who don't... Uh, she's an act- American actress in Orange is Orange New Black. Black. Poker face, Poker more face. Huge star. Russian doll. Um, 
so they you, stumble upon, and we're talking about the bad effects of social media, but these people are stumbling upon your work from, from afar. Mm-hmm, exactly. Right. And like uh, people from various countries, whatever. So that was kind of the first moment of, wow, people want what I can do. And it kind of just went from there again on social media. Everything I've kind of gotten has been through social media, you know. And it's all very new. Yes, exactly. Like everything I'm doing is for the first time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Self-taught. And social media, you mean in, it's Instagram? Instagram mostly, yeah. Yes. Do you use Facebook? By no, it? no, I don't. No. <laughs> but you said that very quickly. Like, I think I have a Facebook. <laughs> I think I have a Facebook that automatically posts, <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not part of that. I'm is not that, part of that. Is that for the older? older yeah, older yeah, that's for my mom to read. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Your mom, by the way, you know, she's a young woman still, and there's a real kind of air of Kate Bush about your mom. I'm looking at pictures of her here because mm-hmm. you post a lot pictures it being Instagram and all that yes exactly um again embarrassingly I was making stuff and I didn't really have anybody to wear it in the way of I was like okay I just need to post on Instagram I need to you know get stuff out there so I was like yeah. mom throw on this corset or mom throw on this dress so she became a little muse um and most of the clothes like every time I make something I show her and I get her opinion most of the time she doesn't like it you know what I mean? Like, because it's a lot of oh, time really? it's out there, it's whatever, that she's like, I wouldn't wear it, but I'm sure somebody would. <laughs> do you fight over the look of clothes or do you mm. just dismiss? Oh, I dismiss it because I'm, like, okay. I'm like, because I'm like, I know, I know what, we'll, I know what I want to do. And then if she doesn't approve, I'm like, you know what, whatever. It's not for you. <laughs> um. So there was a Kate Bush print. Isn't this the kind of, yes. is this your signature thing now where you do a print on a corset? Yes. So what I do is I get fabric printed, um, Usually on denim and I turn it into a corset. So that's kind of what people mostly want from me. A like, denim corset? Yeah. Or like the other sides would be thing, but the actual photos usually printed on denim because it's nice and durable and it doesn't like uh, wash off. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can wash it though. Absolutely. Uh, are corsets yeah, yeah. having a bit of a moment? They absolutely are, yes. I think TikTok and stuff has, has kind of made fashion cycles a lot quicker and people kind of consume more and consume more different styles. But corsets seem to be one thing that are constantly in demand, um, surprisingly. TikTok has just fast forwarded trends and then dumps them, doesn't it? Is it? Yes, exactly. So you so must be fearful of... Terrified, yeah, because I'm like, you're hot right now and then suddenly... I'm like, what's next? Do you know what I mean? You're sitting on the edge like, oh no. Constant. Yeah. Uh, it's unusual that courses are kind of doing the thing or are having a moment because you kind of associate them with sort of anti-feminism that they were constraining women. Is exactly. That- and I think that's that's the main thing. I think it's that kind of reclaiming of bodily autonomy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Especially like people like The Last Dinner Party are really bringing that kind of renaissance look back into mainstream fashion. Yeah. That was a great indie band. Yes. Uh, I think there's a new album coming out actually this T- week. Tonight, tonight, I think it is. Yes, at 12. Yes. Um, we'd love to play them, but there's... Um, <laughs> they're raunchy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They might not be the most family-friendly <laughs> band in the world. Irish Connection to 11 Oscar nominations for Poor Things. Lots of corsets mm-hmm. in that film with Emma Stone. Exactly, yeah. And I think I think definitely it's having its, its time and fashion at the moment but hopefully it's not just a fa- phase hopefully it will last a lot longer and are you kind of uh, watching did you know this was all happening I mean how do you seem to be ahead of I just I've always courses. been fascinated by corsets I don't know what it is oh right you're just there forever it was the it was the first thing I made the first thing I taught myself how to sew I found a pattern online and I was like let's go for this that seems like a very hard thing to it, looking back on it it was was it made <laughs> well no not at all but the courage of youth. Yeah, exactly. You just exactly. Go anything. And um, you also do a lot of wool. Wool. You're working with wool. A lot of yes. knitting. Yeah, a lot of hand knitting. So all my dresses are hand knit, which takes a while. 
sometimes I'm like, is it worth it? Like I'll be knitting on the bus on the way to college. I'll be doing everything like that. But um, that's a, that's safe to do, is it? I'm always worried about people. Yeah. Well, we're hearing about how, how dodgy Dublin is. Yeah, I think and so. And I just thought a fella knitting on a bus in Dublin. I mean, I used to be on the 75 on the way to Dunleary knitting. So, you know, if I can do it, anyone can. <laughs> <say that. laughs> fair play to you, fair play to you. <laughs> Um, speaking of needles, mm-hmm. uh, knitting needles you're fine with, other needles not so much. Oh, tell us about the story and how important, uh, well, how important that one needle was in your life. Exactly. So Back, we're in secondary school now, was it? Yes. Yeah, I was in first year, which is ages ago for you. Absolutely ages ago Oh my god I can't remember it Uh, No I was in first year And I was quite unwell for a while But I was kind of like I'm fine You know what I mean I I had just started an all Irish school I went to an English speaking primary school I had enough on my plate I was like I don't care I don't care But my mum was like You know I was losing a lot of weight I was always exhausted Kind of mood swings and stuff So she was like She had a feeling I had diabetes Got a little blood testing kit In the chemist Checked it it was kind of like, yeah, okay, he has diabetes. But I was terrified of needles. If anybody mentioned the word blood, I'd pass out, gone. Is that right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going to the hospital. I don't care. I don't care. She brought me up in the end. Um, Like emergency room, whatever, whatever, whatever. I was in this thing called diabetic ketoacidosis, yeah. which is when your bloods are high for a prolonged time. And like, you know, your body essentially starts fighting itself. But get diagnosed with diabetes, had to inject like six times a day. Well, this is type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, yeah. yes. Um, and yeah, it's just something that I have. I was diagnosed with it at this stage. I don't know how many years ago that was. But yeah, I've been kind of struggling with it since in a way. But um, really? it's always been something that I've been kind of like, I don't want to say ashamed by, but I've always been like, okay, how can I cover it? How can I whatever? But now I'm on an insulin pump and no matter what I wear, the wire keeps popping out, poking out because it right. goes into your pocket. Yeah. So one day I was kind of like, wait, how can I combine fashion and diabetes together and kind of glamorize it for myself? Because for a while I was kind of like trying to hide it or how can I cover it up with clothes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of where the inspiration came from incorporating it into what I do. So the, the pump, there's a wire attached to it, is there? Yes. Can you explain so what the... It's, uh, so the pump is like this, like, it looks like a pager mm-hmm. uh, and it's attached to like this clear wire and then that, a cannula goes into your stomach um, that you change every two days. But um, yeah, it's kind of this, this ice, not eyesore, but it pokes out. Like you notice it, it kind of looks like clear you're, headphones. Yeah, you're self-aware. Exactly. And it was kind of like when I was going into these rooms where it's the most fashionable people I know felt like an idiot with a wire sticking out of my body, looking like a cyborg. But then I was kind of like, how can I embrace this? Do you know what I mean? I like, I didn't want to be ashamed of it because it's keeping me alive. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. IADT's own Oren O'Reilly talking about his passion for fashion and how his designs have been a hit with pop stars and famous actors. Just a reminder that he's 21. You're welcome. You can find Oren's designs in Omdiva Boutique in Drury Street in Dublin or on omdivaboutique.com. Well, January is finally over and we can all head into the bank holiday with our heads held high and our livers ready for the struggle. But wait, what fresh hell is this? It's only Adam Maguire talking digital detox with Colm Mungoin this morning. Digital clutter, what is it? Yeah, so we're talking about kind of everything on your phone, on your computer, not just all the icons on your desktop or the the apps that are sitting there as well, although that is 
part of it, but it's it's only a small part of the problem nowadays because we have files and folders and photos and apps in multiple places now, probably across multiple devices as well. So you have your computer desktop and all the files buried around the place there, your smartphone with apps cluttering up the screen. Uh, and uh, and within those apps is a whole other layer of clutter. You know, you maybe have tens of thousands of emails still at your fingertips. 66,000 117 I think in uh, by the last count in, yeah, and that's in just a certain the, person's inbox <laughs> that's just one inbox as well because of course all your social media apps have their own separate inboxes and your messaging systems and direct message and so on so and on top of that maybe you have thousands of, of photos on your phone the majority of which you'll probably never look at again uh, you might have multiple clouds as well Google's cloud Apple's iCloud Microsoft's uh, cloud as well and, and you know it becomes a very hard to manage mess very very easily even if you're an extremely organised person it just gets out of control. All right, but not as bad as 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 real life clutter around the house, is it? Well, there are multiple studies that suggests th- this phenomenon is, is just as bad for us in terms of uh, of, of the, the impact it has on us as real physical clutter that we have around the place. Because the problem with clutter isn't necessarily the mess, it's the lack of control that it, it represents. It, that's what makes us feel stressed and probably frustrated as well because we struggle to find the thing or do the thing that we want to do. And that's why some people can have what looks to, to you or me like a very messy desk but can actually be quite organised and quite calm because they have a system, they know what they're doing even if it looks like a bit of chaos. But if there's no system, that's where the, the, the mess comes into the problem. And and in, I think it's easier to lose control in the digital world than it is in the real world because we're just generating so much digital information, so many sources of, of that information at hand but also very little incentive to rationalise. We're kind of almost encouraged to keep all of this stuff. And at least if it's a pile of papers on your desk, you see the problem, you run out of space and you have to figure it out. But if it's your cloud that has unlimited storage available and you know the incentive is, it's grand, we'll look after you. You don't have to sort through it and delete it. And, and, and so it builds up much easier, I think. All right. I've never tripped over a pair of child's uh, children's apps, though, <laughs> and the way I have a pair of children's shoes. Anyway, Give us an example of an actual real world problem that's created by this kind of digital clutter. Yeah, I was thinking about this and and this is the kind of thing I think everyone will be familiar with in some way or another. Say you're looking for a small bit of information, like maybe a friend's postal address, and you know you've gotten it from them in the past. Uh, you just can't remember where or when you got it. So you start looking through your texts from them, but the search function in texts is not really reliable. It's you know pretty crap, really. So you have to scroll through them, but there's loads of messages, so it's taking ages uh, to do that. And then you think, oh, I can't find it there. Maybe it was a WhatsApp they sent me, so you go through the same process there. Or maybe it was a DM on Facebook or on Twitter, so you go through that and search through there. You still can't find it. Maybe you got it from someone else. So you look through their messages and, you know, you're just piling up all of this searching and, and looking for something and this stress as well. Uh, you know, you look through your notes and you didn't, in your phone, you didn't take a note of it there as well. And and it's that feeling of frustration, stress is just the same as if you were rifling through piles of papers to try and find the same information. It just happens on your phone instead of on the desk. All right. Uh, which, you know, that can slow us down as well, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think about the time you'd spend looking for that little bit of information, that needle in a haystack, not to mention the headspace that you're going to give up even when you're not actively searching because you're constantly thinking, where did I, where did I get that message? Where did I put it? Uh, so on a personal level, it's, it's a, it's a, real waste of your time uh, just as much of it is a frustration from a, a business point of view that kind of digital clutter uh, you know represented across a working day 
it, it, it hits productivity as well. And ultimately, that's a financial cost for businesses, not to mention the very practical impact that cluttered data has on our ability to get things done. Because as people will know, if your device is full of, of stuff, if the hard drive is full and you're relying on a lot of different apps and trying to keep things going at once, it gets slowed down. And that's another layer of frustration, another layer of time wasting because there's just too much stuff going on in your device to, to make you work efficiently. All right. I suppose, you know, it, 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 it's not too dissimilar from the idea of having large boxes of paper sent off to storage and, and people having to go and, and retrieve that, providing they have a, a good card index system or, or whatever, which I think the last time we just discussed card index systems in reality was probably on for uh, intercert examinations. <laughs> but... These are the kind of problems technology was supposed to fix. Technology is supposed to make everything easier, make things smoother. Yeah, and I, like, I remember the early days of cloud computing and this was going to make our lives so much better. We wouldn't need to worry about having a personal, uh, powerful device under our desk anymore. Everything would be waiting for us in the cloud and it would all be there at our fingertips. And there's a grain of truth to that, but what the kind of promise didn't tell us was that we'd actually have multiple clouds that probably don't really talk to each other. So Just now, explain that, yeah. So, so yeah, so now, for example, you have the information that's on your computer siloed there, for better or worse, uh, and not so much anymore. That would have been the only place you would have had information the past. Now, though, you might have your work stuff on a Microsoft cloud, your personal stuff on an Apple or a Google cloud. You then have, you know, as I say, your multiple apps as well, which all are technically kind of cloud-based systems as well that you have to go looking for. And they don't really, there might be a way to get them to talk to each other, but they kind of discourage it because they want to be your only customer and they want to make it as you know, inconvenient as possible to use other people's technology. So you have all of these little silos full of different bits of your information that aren't well organised and that don't talk to each other and it just becomes more and more of a mess. Whereas at least back in the old days of having it all on your desktop computer, you knew it was there or it wasn't and that was the end of it then. Yeah, until the IT people came and told you that your computer didn't work anymore <laughs> it was and gone it'd all been wiped. And is there any way of, of consolidating that kind of information if you wanted to you know, have it all consolidated in a single cloud or is that the kind of service you have to pay serious money well, for? Well, I, I mean, really, the the, the the boring answer here and the unfortunate answer is it's just like real life clutter. You have to put the work in. You have to sit down and decide, I'm getting rid of all of this stuff. I'm moving all of this stuff from one to the other. Uh, there are ways to link these clouds together sometimes and in some ways it's not always perfect, but you ultimately have to make the deci- decision to be organised and to, to put that shape in it yourself and put the work in. Oh my God. God, it's so unfair. Adam Maguire with tips on how we can digitally declutter our lives if we put in the work. On today with Claire Byrne this morning. In Whelan's in Dublin tonight, the singer-songwriter David Gray kicks off a four-night run of gigs, celebrating 30 years since he first played in the venue. On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, Ray spoke to David your past is catching up on you. Uh, it, it is, yeah. The past is another country with uh, less social media and no traffic. Uh, this is going to be exciting. Uh, I'm, it's the old me. I'm meeting the old me. <laughs> How was that for you? It's great, actually. Yeah, we did a little warm-up in London a couple of days ago, and uh, that was it was amazing. It's great to immerse yourself in the music. It's not some strange form of archaeology. I think when the songs wake up, they just take hold of me completely, and I end up right back there doing the, the thing I used to do in the way that I used to do it. So it's a kind of full-on 
rough and ready, raw experience, and we're trying to keep it that way, really, you know, to honour honor the way those early gigs were. So there's no teching, I'm just doing my own guitars and all that stuff. Right, because the temptation is, you know, with the 30 years and the advances in technology and the changes in you and your personality and mellowing and all that, is to approach the songs differently. Yeah, no, we're, we're trying to honour the way they are on the record. I mean, it's only... That, that very first show uh, in, on February the 4th, 1994, it was just me and Neil, mm. uh, Neil McCall on guard. But uh, the one we came back for a few months later had Clune, with the one-armed Clune uh, making his debut. Uh, so Clune is with us. So it's me, Clune and Neil. So we don't have a full band. So what we do with the songs, we, we're basing it more around the two acoustic guitar principle and trying to keep as close to the way the arrangements were on the record and the way that they developed yeah. live back then. So it's, yeah, it's it's very much uh, in keeping with how it used to be. It's very exciting for people who are going to be there who may have been at those early gigs 30 years ago. And of course, just like you and me and everybody else, time marches on and they have changed and they'll be probably meeting their, their younger selves as well. <laughs> That's right. Because, yeah, something lives inside the music for everyone, yeah. whether you're a listener or whether you're playing it. Of course, I'm a listener too. So when I'm playing the song, I'm hearing it myself. And uh, this was a period of my life when I wrote these songs, when everything was up for grabs. I was, you know, a young man. I, I guess when I came here, I just got married. So there were love songs, there were breakup songs, there's, there's kind of political ranting, there's all the sort of jagged edges of what I was, a sort of not fully formed person just then. I was, I was still very raw and throwing myself into, so throwing myself into everything. Yeah. So uh, it, it's, 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 but the, the, the feeling that maybe the songs aren't as polished as they could be, like look, looking at them from a sort of, uh, you know, a, a perspective of having matured a bit as a recording artist and as a writer, but this, the feeling that's there is very real, and, and I think that that's why it's such a pleasure to sing them again. And um, I love this solution that, uh, of, of focusing on a couple of records or a record, like we did on the White Ladder thing. So this is kind of it's a continuation of the retrospective that seems to be in progress. <laughs> so walking into so. Whelan's then, walking back into Whelan's, because that was a moment for you. Uh, I, you know, I've you said it; it was life changing that 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 gig because you, you found your tribe, you found your audience that night yeah yeah it was immense i mean i can't overvalue it and and in a way these these gigs uh, uh those these records are almost like the most important ones it's when the spark sort of took hold and and suddenly there was some energy there coming from some other people that weren't just me <laughs> people took the music and they, and they ran with it and i had this response and uh, you know it was so hard in the uk i mean to, to just get any kind of feeling back, you know, there was the there was a bit of enthusiasm here and there, very small pockets of people, but when I came here, it, it just it just was just huge, and um, it, it did it, it did provide the structure and the support and the momentum that, that led, that's led to everything else. So that was a seismic moment for me, yeah. that very first show here, and the the response from the audience when we walked on stage after the introduction from Pat Inglesby. Was, it was a bigger response I'd ever had than ever coming off a stage. And uh, I, I gave it absolutely everything I had until I'd either run out of guitar strings or songs or I couldn't sing anymore. So who's going to introduce you tonight then? 
I, I have nothing up my sleeve. It's, uh, it's <laughs> maybe there's a surprise in the pipeline. I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't thought of that yet. Uh, we've just been concentrating on trying to get the songs working. Yeah. So uh, I haven't thought of the intro. I'll, I'll get on to my team now. <laughs> uh, your daughter is now writing songs. Um, she is, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Does she feel any pressure? Has she communicated? I'm sure she you? does. Yeah. I, I, I'm just leaving her to it, and um, but yeah, well, not 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 really advice, but uh, encouragement. I think you know, just uh, to throw herself into it if that's what she wants to do, and mm. uh, it's not a very easy world, the music world, the music industry. It's you know, it's opinionated, it's harsh, it's it's pretty tough going really. You've got to really love what you do. So uh it's that that moment you have on stage has got to be something so important to you that the rest of it you 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 can learn somehow to develop a thick enough skin to to let all that wash off you. Because the the important thing is what happens with you and the audience and the songs. So she's right at the beginning, she's very, very young uh, I'm not really trying to tilt her this way or that way. Just uh, she's she's actually done some singing for me on my new record because ah. uh, I wanted to not hear my own backing vocals. So we've we've used her on the, on the three songs on the new album to 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 sort of to add a, a kind of a, a female voice in there that and it, it's really worked. So that that was really funny. Uh, <laughs> putting her under the microscope with dad I, I, it, I find it impossible not to to show the way I feel so it's <laughs> thankfully I've got a producer who's very sort of clever and artful and, and gentle and, and encouraging the presumably not gentle artful and encouraging David Gray talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon David plays the first of four nights in Whelan's in Dublin starting tonight Originally from Chile, Paul Walker lives in Newport County, Mayo, and he spoke this morning to Oliver Callan about his rather unusual job. Tell us about your work. What do you do out in the west of Ireland? Well, um, I, I used to work as a shepherd for, yes. for a man in Connemara, mm-hmm. uh, gathering sheep on his farm. And I also help other farmers that work in commonage to bring down their sheep. Apart from that, we, we have our own dogs, which we train. We occasionally also train dogs for other people and that will be kind of in a nutshell what we do. So you're training, breeding, trialling dogs for working um, on sheep farms? Yes, yes. We also have a little company with my neighbour, Alan Moran, which we go to nursing homes and schools. We've done a few demonstrations then, yes. That's a cover with the dogs? With the dogs, we have a portable portable round pen and very, very well-trained sheep. And we have one dog that uh, we explain to the students uh, how they were bred, how they think, how we how we train them, and we've had very very good feedback from from them and from nursing homes too. Oh really? So you're actually doing a full live demonstration of sheepdogs with the sheep and how yes. it all works? Yes, we've had very very good feedback from them because uh, dogs and mountain and sheep are very very ingrained in Ireland and it, it, it especially among farmers. There's a common language only that is, is kind of understandable by people who've been farming or people who know about mountains. They really understand the value of a good dog. So we've had very good feedback from them. So the, the good dog is the black and white border collie? Yes, it, it's a work dog. It was bred uh, in, this, in the border between Scotland and England back in a time where farmers were very poor and they relied 100% on a dog to be able to bring back uh, sheep that were mostly wild 
in the mountains. So yeah. they were they were the centre of the economy mostly. And the, the natural instinct of these dogs is to kind of gather around, isn't it? Or to gather others? Yes, because of the breeding or different types of dogs, they got this dog that has the outrun, which is the gathering instinct ingrained in his brain, together with driving and pushing a sheep away. It, it, that's that's what, they, what we've kind of inherited thanks to the farmers and thanks to how they adapted to nature. Yeah, the, the black and white border collies are a beautiful, a beautiful dog and uh, we've had them, a lot of us have had them growing up over the years in farms. They're, they're definitely the most popular thing on an Irish farm, the, the, the dog. What, what's the trait you're looking for? What's the, what's the best trait you need in, in a collie? Well, according to me, you know, every handler has, has a different uh, opinion. I think temperament is quality number one. The dog must be, must be friendly, must be happy. Because when a dog is happy and is kind of friendly, uh, it's easy to train because if, if they're doing something right, they know it. And yeah. if they're doing something wrong, they don't take the correction personally. <laughs> they just say, okay, well, that, then I have to correct my, my, my attitude. But a nervous dog or a, or a timid dog, you have to be both a trainer and a psychiatrist. Psych- Psychiatrist, because they they take everything personal, so <laughs> it, it, it's much harder to work with a dog that is not friendly and outgoing. They're lovely and sensitive. Are all uh, border collies are they intelligent enough for training? They all have different uh, abilities. Some dogs mm-hmm. learn very very fast. Some dogs are a bit slower. Every dog has a fault, and we as trainers, what we do is we try to help the dog to gain more confidence around that fault and put more energy in what, he, in what he can do well. Okay. How do you communicate with the animal? We start them around 10 or 11 months old when they're physically faster than sheep or they're, they're able to outrun the sheep. And on a round pen with quiet sheep, we make them run, for example, to the left and we go repeating the command to the left. Then we make them run to the right. And they, after a few sessions, they already know Kambai is the command that we usually use for the left, means left. Away means right. And oh, we nice. also, some, some trainers put whistles immediately on the dogs and some put them after, but they learn extremely fast because it's the most intelligent breed in the world and it's the most common dog in Ireland. Is that right? I never knew that. I have a selection of, of sheep dog whistles here. So, that's alongside the Kambai and away. Or yes, is it instead yes. of? Do you do the whistle instead, or is it? Well, um, every every dog has a different set of whistles. Um, mostly, the, the whistle to the left, the most common is <whistles> the whistle to the right is. Oh, the right. Stop is a, it. Every dog has a different different set of whistles, but those are the most commonly used. And you're not using a whistle there. That's just you doing doing with your mouth. Yes, I use a metal whistle, but my my neighbor, he's very good. He uses his mouth. That's the way you should do it, really. That's the way to do. It's kind of like a Morse code, isn't it? It's kind of two two dashes there for the left, one for the right, and a short one for stop. Every command, every command. So the dogs understand left from right, but every command has many many different variations. Because if you do, for example, a long whistle to the right. The dog understands he has to go wide and long back. Or if you do a sharp one, he's going to come in a bit tighter. Or if you do a half one, he's going to go, he's going to be kind of waiting for the stop because a half stop means a half flank. So they're extremely intelligent. It's, yeah. 
they always keep you on your toes because they can learn good things and bad things very fast. Are there sheepdog commands? Are they different across the world? Um, we we use the universal ones because, for example, if if you sell a dog to China, uh, the man there instead of putting his own commands, he's going to use the same whistles that we introduced them here. Right. Uh, we, we use kind of the, the same kind of universal left, right, stop, that'll do, come back, and all that. It's kind of the same one. The universal language. Because I know there's the way we call cattle in Ireland. Farmers are slightly different in different parts of the country. The the accent. Yeah, well, we up around Monon, which I'm from, it would be kind of suck, 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 suck. And in, in many parts of the country as well. But I believe around Munster, um, well, I think in Munster, it's kind of just general swearing at them. But <laughs> or hop, yeah. hop, 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 hop is a kind of a different, different one. But that's for cattle, which is a kind of a less refined than sheepdog commands, will we say. Yes, every every handler has has its own, and and they're all good. It's not that it's not that ours is better than others. You're I've very seen, kind. I, I, very I, kind. I've, I've seen I've seen farmers use their own kind of codes, and the dogs working well anyway. So yeah, as long as it's only whatever, trained what, what, on the animals. Shepherd Paul Walker talking about well shepherding with Oliver Callum this morning. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, could this be the last ever edition of Playback Daily? We learned from Colm Mungo this morning that NASA has warned of a potentially dangerous asteroid the size of a football pitch, which is due to hit us, I mean pass by us, tomorrow afternoon. To alleviate the sum of all our fears, Colm spoke to Dr Jenny Millard, astronomer and presenter of the Awesome Astronomy podcast. What are the assessments of the risk of collision so far? It's absolutely not going to hit us. So although it is coming near Earth on the scale of the solar system, it's actually going to be quite far away from us. So its closest pass is about seven times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. So the Moon's going to be closer than this asteroid. And the Moon is actually really far away. You can fit 30 of our planet in between Earth and the Moon. So it's definitely not going to hit us. It's not going to change course. It's one that's monitored really closely because it is classified is potentially hazardous so we know its orbit really well so there's nothing to worry about nobody's asked the moon if it's worried have they <laughs> no but the moon shouldn't be worried either because it'll be uh, really far away from the moon so we're not you know going to okay. see an impact on the moon or anything like that will we see the asteroid so this one's going to be really faint, so it's not going to be visible, you know, to the naked eye or binoculars or small telescopes. But for professional telescopes, you know, they'll monitor it as it makes a close pass because it's a really good opportunity to actually do some science on this asteroid. When they come close, we've got a better opportunity to figure out what they're made of. We can better refine their size, refine their orbit even more as well. So science-wise, it's a great opportunity. All right. Now, I'm after introducing this saying it's the size of a football pitch, but it's clearly not a large green rectangle hurtling through space. <laughs> so tell us a bit about its its dimensions and, and what it is. So exactly its size is somewhat uncertain because the way we figure out the size of an asteroid is all about how bright it is and like how its brightness changes over time, how we think it's reflecting light. So this will just be sort of a, a rocky composition, roughly the size of a football pitch, could be a bit smaller, could be a bit bigger. But its size 
And then the fact that it comes close to Earth is what puts it in this category of potentially hazardous. But potentially hazardous is is a little bit of a strange phrase because it just means that, oh, it could be dangerous maybe at some point in the distant future, hundreds of years, but it doesn't mean that it's got a good chance of hitting Earth. So yeah, it's just another bit of space debris left over from the solar system's formation that just happens to be coming to our neck of the woods very, very briefly. Okay, so potentially dangerous, but not to us. No, not not right now. So it's the potentially in there when it comes to science is a minuscule chance that in the next couple of hundred years, it may hit Earth. And when I say minuscule, I'm talking much, much less than 1%. The actual definition for a potentially hazardous asteroid is anything that's over 140 metres in size, because that do sort of citywide damage and anything that comes within about 20 times the distance of the earth and the moon so so those are the kind of numbers that are defining what is potentially hazardous all right but that doesn't yeah mean it's actually dangerous to us what do we know about where it came from so this will be an asteroid um, from the main asteroid belt. So this is one between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. There's a huge ring of debris there with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of asteroids. And that's left over from the solar system's formation. So sometimes because Jupiter is such a big planet, it can kind of nudge asteroids out of this um, this ring of debris because of its great gravitational influence. And then they kind of make their way around near the Earth environment. And how often does that happen? Oh, all the time. We've got asteroids sailing past us all the time. Even even this week, there's another sort of three or four that we know about that are going to sort of zip past our general vicinity. There are tens of thousands of near-Earth asteroids, so these are ones that come with, you know, pretty close to our orbit. And they're the ones we know about, you know, which are, there are many more that we don't know about, and but we are making steps to try and find the ones we don't know about. So right. we've got new telescopes coming online to find them, going back through old data. So we are really the safest we've ever been because we've got these great big sensitive telescopes and we've got a plan if anything does kind of loom from the darkness of space we can, for the first time in humanity's history, do something about it. All right, indulge me. We could see the asteroid coming, but what could we do about it? Right, so all, in all the big films, you know, the Hollywood blockbusters, it's, oh, we're going to have to blow it to pieces. But actually, that would be really difficult to do because you'd have to put the bombs in exactly the right place. You'd have to know the internal structure of the asteroid really well. Is it rocky? Is it made of metals? So the best thing we can do, actually, is just kind of nudge it out of the way. So we would hit it with something to change its trajectory so that it would just skim past Earth instead of hitting us. And we actually did this test. It was called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, where NASA sent a satellite up to the moon going around a distant asteroid, and they slammed this satellite into the moon in like a big punch, really, in an effort to try and change that moon's orbit. And it was really, really successful. They did change it. So that would be our plan, is that we would punch the asteroid out of the way, essentially. Asteroid punching. Someone get Bruce Willis on the line. That's Dr. Jenny Millard, astronomer and presenter of the awesome Astronomy Podcast, talking to Colm O'Mongoin about the likely end of the world as we know it. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. I'll be back on the catch-up beat tomorrow, assuming there is a tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening. And good luck. Happy birthday, Luan.